So as we approach this, from a Pentecostal perspective, we wanna do this with humility. And I wanna state right off the top, there are no second-class Christians in the kingdom of God. This is not about arrogance. This is about humility. I'm gonna sit down. There's a reason I'm sitting down, friends. I've noticed as I, uh, as I get the edit of our sermon videos over the last few weeks, that I've been very long-winded. And so today I have so much to cover, because I think, I'm so excited about today, by the way, but I have so much to cover, so much to get into, that I gotta sit on a stool so I stick to my notes a little bit more and not go out too off script because we got so much to do and it's too important. I don't want to mess this up. Last week, we spoke about the things of revival. Who was here last week? Things of revival. What is revival? We answered that question to the best of our ability together in community. What is revival? What are we pursuing when we talk about revival? And we came kind of to the conclusion, Holy Spirit capturing or recapturing our hearts with a desire for intimacy and relational devotion to God. First and foremost, that's what we're pursuing. And the markers of revival were hearts being turned to Jesus, right? People changed and in love with Jesus. Those are the main things when it came to revival. But also, there was the fruit of the Spirit growing in the believer. And then finally, there was a missional reinvigoration. Every revival has had a missional reinvigoration, an empowering and ascending out of people intimate with Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, changing the world around them. And it's this missional part that I really feel we need to explore today. And we have to ask the question, what is it about revival, the stirring of the Spirit in people's hearts and lives, that inspires missional people? What is it? I mentioned last week during the sermon that we are a Pentecostal church. How many knew that? Evangel Church is an Evangel Pentecostal church. We are a Pentecostal church. We have a Pentecostal distinctive in our theology, in our beliefs. That's not just intellectual. For many of us, that's experiential. It's both. We've experienced something of the Spirit. In fact, the movement that we are a part of is, comes out of um, a moment back at, uh, at 312 Azusa Street. We can kind of trace it right back to like a place and a time. This is in Los Angeles, California. Uh, it was an old African Methodist Episcopal church where all of this kind of took place. And at that time, it was being used, that church building itself, you can see it there. It was being used uh, as a livery stable and a, and a storage building. And so what happened is on April 9th, 1906, William J. Seymour, pictured there, he and seven others were at a house on Bray Street. And there's this moment when just something happened as they were praying and seeking God. And one of the eyewitnesses says this at the moment. He says, when suddenly, as though hit by a bolt of lightning, they were knocked from their chairs to the floor. This is the moment. This is the beginning, the catalyst of what is known today as the Azusa Street Revival. And coming out of this moment, what happened is the press for this just spread out so fast. And people began to come from all over. So they had to find another place. So they found this old building at 312 Azusa Street. And they started having services. And people started coming. At first it was locally. And then it was regionally. And then it was people from all over the world started hearing about what God was stirring and doing in Los Angeles at Azusa Street, and they came. And God changed people. And what's so interesting about this is we today, sitting in this church, if you look around, this building, these people, this movement we're a part of, 
was sparked by something the Spirit did back in 1906. Like we're a part of a movement. We're a part of something bigger than ourselves. I think that's so special. I think there's something inspirational about that. And this revival lasted from 1906 till about 1915. And I'm not going to lie, it was a bit of a mess, especially near the end. Around leadership, there's all sorts of weird, messy stuff going on, as we do, right? How many know we like to ruin a good thing sometimes? But that doesn't take away from the fact that there was a movement that was sparked. And what was so significant about the Azusa Street Revival was the missional people that were inspired to go out, give up their entire lives, their dreams, their things, their pursuits, for the pursuit of establishing the things of the kingdom wherever they went. And so a lot of them came back to Canada. St. John's, Newfoundland, Winnipeg, Manitoba. We see these moments of church planning and that revival spreading across the globe. It became a catalyst for a worldwide movement of people empowered by the Spirit to be missional. And today we're going to ask the question, what is Pentecostalism and why does it matter to us? Uh, maybe, maybe let's, let's be a little even more specific than that. What is the Pentecostalist theological belief around spirit baptism? And why does that matter to us? Now, I want to say something from the very top. There are no second-class Christians in the kingdom of God. I want to ask you... I want to ask each of you, in whatever context and whatever way you approach this, wherever you're at in your own theological understanding or your own theological experience, I want to ask each of us to walk in humility today. This is about walking in humility. This is not the main thing. Like as much as it's so important to the Pentecostal, this is not the main thing. The main thing is the indwelling of the Spirit, that place of regeneration, coming into salvation, regeneration, walking in this newness of life. That's the main thing. That will always be the main thing. The Spirit revealing Jesus. And today, churches are not nearly as tribal as they once were. I mean, there was a day, some of you remember a day when, when you were in church, there was only Pentecostals in your Pentecostal church. There were only Baptists in your Baptist church. There were only Reformed Theology holders in your Reformed church, they were all, it was very tribal. And today we have such a beautiful, eclectic mix. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a blessing to the church. So as we approach this, from a Pentecostal perspective, we want to do this with humility. And I want to state right off the top, there are no second-class Christians in the kingdom of God. This is not about arrogance. This is about humility. And so please hear that. Hear my heart in that. And can we just be mature together, in unity together, as we walk this out? Like I said, Evangel Pentecostal Church is a Pentecostal church. We're part of a rich heritage of the Pentecostal movement. It's estimated that over 644 million believers on this planet right now are of the Pentecostal or charismatic persuasion. In fact, in 1980, Pentecostal charismatics made up about 6% of the global Christian perspective. Uh, today, it's over 26%. And I say this to say that we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves here in Powell River, in our little corner of the world. We're a part of a movement. So let's start by dispelling a misconception. Now, I don't speak for all Pentecostal expressions. Some are a little bit fringy and out there on this. But the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, the fellowship of which we are a part and of which we are affiliated, does not see Pentecostal Christianity as an exclusive Christian expression. Okay? This is important to note. Our position is that all who call on the name of Jesus with repentance are redeemed and saved and sealed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
That's our theological position. Again, that's the main thing. Heaven is going to be an absolute mix of denominational beliefs. It's going to be an absolute mix. It's going to be so eclectic. And in that moment, we're all going to be unified in Christ. And we're all going to learn what's up together in humility before a holy, righteous, perfect God. And so this is, this is the deal. This is where we're at. So let's keep the main thing the main thing. So we have to remain humble and submitted to these foundational, salvific, salvation theology beliefs. So as we jump into today, we, we must approach it in two ways. We must approach this intellectually as we look, turn to the scriptures with good hermeneutic, good study, but we also need to approach it experientially. The reality of good theology without good experience is useless, right? Amen? It, it just is. Theology gives us an understanding of God's interaction with man and his plan for the world. And so we need to do this together, both intellectually, but also we need to leave room and have an expectation that the Spirit wants to affirm things experientially as well. So my prayer today is to, at the very least, inspire a waiting, a discerning, and a seeking of what God may have for you in the season ahead. That's my goal today, is to create a sense of expectation for what God would have for you in the season of head. So let's take that journey together. We're going to be jumping around a lot today uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So lock in those Bible drill skills. If you have your Bible, pull it out. If you have your phone, you can pull that out. Um, it is going to be on the screen as well. But we're going to start in the Old Testament with two key prophetic kind of records that speak to the work of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit was going to come to do in our New Testament understanding. The first is in Ezekiel, chapter 36, 25 to 27. So if you have that, you can look that up. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. If you're watching online, uh, visit myevangel.church forward slash Bible to get a digital Bible on your phone right now to follow along with us. Ezekiel writes this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, this, of course, is describing the work of the Spirit in the one who believes, in the one who comes to that place of decision, of accepting the salvation God would have for them. This, is, this describes the infilling of the Spirit at salvation, the regeneration that the Spirit brings to the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, and they come to this place of humility before God and accept what he has for them. That's what this is explaining. But there's another Old Testament prophecy, and it's found in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. Joel chapter 2, 28 to 29. And it says this, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on, and if you have your Bible, underline this, all people, preteens, Hey, preteens, this means you. Like, I, I'm, I'm praying today that the Holy Spirit would begin to stir something in you as you hear these words. That you wouldn't just hear my words, but the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of God who's living and active right now, in this moment, that he would speak to you. That he would stir something in you because he had something for you. I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. 
Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is also a promise of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And here, Joel, he speaks of this supernatural empowerment, the event that would become to be known as Pentecost, that we read about in Acts chapter 2. And how do we know this? Well, Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in his first sermon to those in Jerusalem, what does he quote? Let's look. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. Just consider the spectacle of what is going on. It says that there is this rushing wind. There was as appeared as though tongues of fire above the heads of these disciples and these 70 that were waiting on God in the upper room. And they began to speak in other tongues. And there's a whole spectacle. There's this whole thing happening. And it leaves the upper room and it spills out into the streets of Jerusalem. And Peter speaks these words. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he gets in to the prophecy of Joel from Joel 2. And I'm guilty of this as well, but we often attribute the day of Pentecost to something like the birth of the church. Who's ever heard that? And, and I think in some ways, like, it could be a little bit semantics here. Okay, I'll give you that. It could be a little bit of semantics. But I think maybe a better understanding of this moment is to think less birth of the church and more the empowerment of the church. The empowerment of believers to be empowered to be on mission in this world. And I'm going to try to make this argument today. Uh, not to be right, friends. Not to be right but to create in you an expectation of something more. Because I really believe there is something more for you. And that's my prayer today. The Pentecostal position in um, these Old Testament prophecies speak to, we would believe that they speak to the same event, but with two distinctions. Same event, but with two outcomes and two distinctions. Regeneration, so we're talking about salvation, and subsequent to that, empowerment. The empowerment of the believer to be on mission and to be bold witnesses of the gospel. So let me ask you a question. Before the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, were the disciples saved? Right? So this is, this is just something to think about. Were the disciples saved? Were they regenerated in the way that we understand regeneration in a New Testament theological context? Let, let, let me read a few things to you. Luke 10, verse 20, Jesus is recorded as saying, however, this is after they had kind of done some really cool stuff on mission. He says, however, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the question is like, when were the disciples regenerated? And it's kind of hard to know. Uh, some scholars would point to kind of a moment in the upper room when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, reveals himself to the disciples. This is found in John 20, 21 to 23. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Whatever that looks like, we know that the 12 
that the 12 went out on mission. We know that the 12 in, in Luke uh, chapter 9, and then the 70 in, in Luke chapter 10, you can read these accounts of them going out on mission, signs and wonders following, with proclamation of Jesus being the Messiah come to save. And the Pentecostal perspective sees the church has already been established in the belief and the faith of these earliest disciples. We see Jesus comes as the risen Savior post-grave, and he spends 40 days with these men and women that had followed him and given their lives to him. So there's this kind of neat anomaly that we don't get to have, right? Because Jesus then ascended into heaven. We don't see, we don't see Jesus. He's revealed to us by the Spirit today. But before that, these disciples, they literally saw the resurrected Jesus. They had no need of the Spirit to give them revelation of the resurrected Jesus. He was there right in front of them. He was teaching them. They could touch him. They could feel the wound in his side. They could... And so there's this idea that as Pentecost comes and the Spirit is poured out on these disciples, this is not a moment of regeneration for these disciples. This is a moment of empowerment. Empowerment to step out and to be bold witnesses of what they already know to be true because they've experienced it in real time. Now, to create a theological position around an event that is kind of anomalous, right? This is a one-time event. The outpouring of the Spirit in terms of this is the first time it's ever happened in the, in, in the history in a global way for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So we can't create a theology around that. We have to kind of go beyond. We have to see some patterns develop to give us an understanding of this idea of Pentecost being not the spirit in regeneration, but also in empowerment. So let's jump ahead to the Samaritan outpouring, because we see another outpouring. This is after the spirit's been released into the world. This is after kind of we've entered the golden age of the spirit work among us and empowering his church. This is found in Acts chapter 8. So let's jump there together. Acts chapter 8, verse 12 to 17. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news, these are the Samaritans, Philip has gone to them to declare that Jesus is the Messiah. When they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, Simon himself believed and was baptized. Simon was a, a sorcerer, uh, a pagan sorcerer at that time. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. Okay, so there's this idea here that we see this moment of salvation, regeneration, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Right? Can, can, are we together on that? Like, do we, do we feel that? All right. So, verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Hold on, but they already have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? They've already been regenerated. They already have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, what what are they concerned about here? Why are they sending Peter and John? And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. The Pentecostal distinctive would say, we're speaking now not of the regeneration of the Spirit, new life in Jesus. We're now talking about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And at this point, the Spirit has already been poured out, kind of, like I said, the golden age of Pentecost, this, this uh, season and moment of the Spirit in the world has been released. 
And yet we see this moment of spirit baptism coming to the believers in Samaria. Empowerment for the mission set before the church. But let's, let's do one more example from the New Testament. Saul of Tarsus. Who knows Saul of Tarsus? Formerly known. The artist formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. And now we know him as Paul. He wrote much of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we have now Saul of Tarsus. He's interrupted on his quest to kill and imprison Christians. That's what he's about. He's zealous. He believes he's doing the right thing. And he's on the road to Damascus to go kill and imprison Christians that are saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Because he's a good, devout Jew, and he wants to squash this uprising of false teaching in his mind. And on the way to Damascus, what happens? Jesus, in a vision, appears to him and changes everything. And he has this encounter with God that reveals Jesus as the Savior. It's inexplicable. And he's blind. And they take him, and for three days he's blind. And then there's this moment that Ananias is inspired by the Spirit through a vision to go and seek out Saul of Tarsus, the one who's been prosecuting and killing Christians in the region. And he goes, and, and here's the account in Acts 9, 17 to 19. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Paul's eyes, or Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Notice how kind of Ananias, and this is, I will grant you, this is a bit of a weaker theological argument, but he greets Saul as brother. He calls him brother. There's this kind of familial um, term that he uses for this man who was once the enemy of the church. And there's no record of him telling Saul to repent and to confess and to believe he simply prays for healing and to be filled with the Spirit. And it's days later after this, Saul is in the synagogue declaring Jesus as the Messiah. He's made a complete 180-degree turn in the trajectory of his life and what he's all about. So then let's ask the question, why should we seek the baptism of the Spirit? And for some of us, maybe the question is, why should we seek the continual baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, here's the main thing when it comes to the Pentecostal perspective. If you're taking notes, write this down, because this is so important. This is so important. This is the main thing, always. Always, this is the main thing. We seek Holy Spirit baptism for the empowerment of proclamation. We seek the Spirit so that we might be bold witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world around us. This is the main thing, always the main thing. When it comes to spirit baptism, this is everything. Peter, when he's filled with the Spirit, he preaches a sermon to his fellow Jews in Jerusalem. And in that moment, 3,000 come to believe. That wasn't because Peter was so good. That was because the work of the Spirit was doing something in the hearts and minds of people hearing these words. And there was this partnership of the declaration of truth with the empowerment of the Spirit that changed hearts and minds. We need to believe this. We need to, as a church, start expecting this again. Empowered proclamation became the hallmark of the Spirit-empowered life. Paul is filled with the Spirit. And as I said, after several days, he spent several days, it says, with some disciples. 
several days with some disciples, and then he's in the synagogues declaring Jesus is the Messiah. I can't even begin to tell you how radical and wild that would have been. The change in, in Saul to Paul and the expression of ministry that he stepped into days after receiving, being converted and changed and regenerated with a revelation of the risen Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, and he began to change the world around him. Days after. Acts 1, verse 8, So you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Empowered speech, proclamation, witness is the primary outcome of spirit baptism. Now, I can't stress this enough. Like, if you, if you wrote that down, highlight it, underline it, circle it, put a star. Keep that the main thing. If you don't keep that the main thing, I think that's where feelings of exclusiveness, of pride, of swole, like swole heads and spirits. If we don't keep this the main thing, that begins to happen. And again, we need to approach this with such humility, friends. Dr. Van Johnson wrote, Pentecostalism didn't circle the globe because believers stood at church altars praying in tongues. Rather, it did so because they re-engaged our world as empowered witnesses after having prayed. Now this brings us to what Pentecostal, that Pentecostal expression that is probably most famous slash infamous. Can I say that? Because now we have to ask the question, what is the sign what is the sign of the Spirit-baptized, the Spirit-empowered life? Um, in former statements of belief with our fellowship here in Canada, uh, we use uh, language like evidence. What is the evidence? Uh, what is the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? This is a question that we have wrestled with for, for ever since the inception ever since these catalytic moments of experience with the moving of the Spirit in the 20th century and creating teaching and theology and understanding around it. And so this is kind of where the Pentecostal distinctive becomes a little more on display. But I wanted to say this before we get into it. This is not the main thing. Okay, friends? Like, this is not the main thing. Don't get so caught up in this. Because it is, it is, it's strange. It's weird, it's wild. I'm just forewarning you, those no, new to faith or new to this kind of teaching, it can feel a little weird, I'm not going to lie. And so it stands out, it becomes kind of like this main thing in our minds, but it's not the main thing. Bold witness of the gospel is the main thing, will always be the main thing. That's what we see. Empowerment to declare, empowered proclamation of what Jesus has done. But we do have teaching around the sign or the receipt of delivery, so to speak. And that sign is a phenomenon we know as speaking in other tongues. Speaking in other tongues is a prayer language that you are given supernaturally by the Spirit that you have not learned. In fact, it bypasses to some degree your cognitive thought, and it's spirit to spirit. It's uninterrupted prayer, spirit to spirit. Sometimes in corporate setting, we know of tongues and interpretation. It's spirit to spirit, then interpreted so we can understand and be edified together, encouraged together, built up together as a body. But there's also this idea of just our own personal prayer life. 
our own personal intimacy with Jesus, empowered by the Spirit to be edified and to be built up. And so this is what we're talking about. It's a way of communion with God. And it's an act that edifies or builds up the Spirit. In fact, Paul, uh, he's writing to the corporate sense, but he does say in, in 1 Corinthians 14, 4, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. There's something of edification, building up, building up of the Spirit in oneself as you pray in tongues. Now, I want to read our fellowship's position here, because uh, I think it's important that we kind of understand we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. There's been a lot of community thought as we step into our theological statements of belief. And this is what comes from our fellowship, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. Again, this is not the Word of God, but this is our best summary of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit means and is. It says this, On the day of Pentecost, Jesus poured out the promised Holy Spirit on the church. As his return draws near, Jesus continues to baptize in the Holy Spirit those who are believers. This empowers them to continue his work of proclaiming with speech and action the good news of the arrival and coming of the kingdom of God. This experience is available for everyone, male and female, of every age, status, and ethnicity. The sign of speaking in tongues indicates that believers have been baptized with the Holy Spirit and signifies the nature of spirit baptism as empowering our communication to be his witnesses with speech and action as we continue to pray in the Spirit. This is our position. This is our theological understanding of this thing known as the spirit baptism. So let's ask the question, how have we come to this belief that the sign of speaking in tongues indicates that a believer has been baptized in the Spirit? How have we come to this kind of place? Well, the easy and most obvious answer is to look at the day of Pentecost. What happened at the day of Pentecost? They began to speak in other languages, unknown and unlearned to them. Now, like we said before, though, this is an anomaly. This is a unique situation. This is the initial outpouring of the Spirit on the church. So we can't create a theology or a position or a doctrine based on a singular event. We need to see a pattern. We need to see something of pattern develop out. The Samaritan outpouring is also not quite clear. Though we, we, read, you know, we read an account of this man, Simon, the sorcerer. You remember him? When he witnessed the baptism of the Spirit, when he witnessed the empowerment and the filling of the Spirit in people, he offered to pay money for the ability to do that for people because he saw an outcome. And so we can infer some things. We can infer something was happening in an outward way that was a display of power, a display of the Spirit empowering and working in the lives of these believers being filled. Something was happening. So what was happening? The conversation and spirit baptism of Paul, formerly Saul, it does not give us a direct report of tongues. Although, when we look at Paul's teaching to the Corinthians, he makes an interesting statement in 1 Corinthians 14, 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So, Paul speaks in tongues. He has this gift. He has this sign in his own life, which is evident. He speaks in tongues. So we know something happened along the way in his empowerment. Now, Peter, this is one that becomes a little more crucial. Peter, he's given this moment. He's given this vision that teaches him not to call anything unclean that God has made clean. Uh, God's giving him a revelation that his spirit is going to be poured out to all the world, not just the Jewish people. And so there's something happening here. And then he's invited to the home of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And Cornelius, subsequent to this, 
He's had a, a vision. He's had a visitation from a man in white who told him that his prayers had been heard. He seems to be this kind of man that is seeking for something more. He's seeking for the kingdom of God in his own life, in his own context. And this man in white appears to him and says, your prayers have been answered. And so Cornelius invites Peter to come to his home. And Cornelius gathers all of his family together with this sense of expectation of what God was going to do. And Luke describes the event in Acts 10, 44 to 46. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, in other words, the Jewish believers that were with Peter, who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. How did they know that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles? For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. They saw this sign and it affirmed to them that this moment of empowerment has happened even to the Gentiles. And now there are other examples. I, like I said, I have so much to cover today. There, there are other examples that we can get into. And if you want to have a conversation about that or, or you want to have a more robust kind of interaction and dialogue, I'd be happy to do that with you. But for the sake of time, we need to kind of step into kind of another part of the journey when it comes to the baptism of the Spirit. As I said at the top, I'm going to call the worship team. As I said at the top, it's both a journey of kind of theological, intellectual understanding. But at the end of the day, as so many things in the life of faith, your intellectual, rational understanding only takes you so far. Before, you have to step into the unknown and trust that the Spirit is going to meet you there. This happened when you were saved. You can only have so much of an understanding of Jesus and who he is and what he is historically and all things until you had to take a step of faith, the unknown. Say, Jesus, if you're there, if you're real, be my Savior. And the Spirit gave you an experience that confirmed beyond your intellect into this understanding of experience that you've been saved. And so it's a both and. It's not an either or. It's a both and. And so let's step into this. Let's switch gears a little bit. Theology is only theoretical until it becomes confirmed by our experience. And I don't preach this sermon as one who come to an intellectual position, though I have. I am a Pentecostal in my distinctives around these theological items. But I haven't come to this conclusion simply because I've taken an intellectual journey. I've come to this conclusion because I've also experienced spirit baptisms in a way that changed me. I was nine years old when I was first baptized in the Spirit. And it wasn't in a church service, though a church service had something to do with it. My dad was covering some pulpit ministry in Swan River. He had a church in Dauphin, but he was just helping another church out. And I went with him on that weekend trip. And he preached of the things of the Spirit in that service. He preached of the baptism of the Spirit, much like we've done today. And on the drive home, I had a million questions. Like, I just, it just sparked something in me. I just had so many questions. I was so inquisitive. 
And my dad's like trying to answer the questions. So we're taking this intellectual at a nine-year-old level, granted, this intellectual journey together. But then I believe the Holy Spirit caught my dad in that moment to understand that there's something a little bit more going on in me that the Holy Spirit had captured something of my heart and my mind that created an expectation in me that there was something more in my young mind of what God would have for me and he was doing a work. And so my dad stopped the intellectual, theological theorizing with his nine-year-old son, if I can say that. And he simply asked me a question. He recognized the Spirit was already doing something. That his job was just to partner with it. And he asked me a question. He said, Lucas, would you like to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? That's what I wanted to hear. Because in my dad even asking that question, there was almost an affirmation that like, yeah, this, this, this could be for me. What I've witnessed, what I've seen growing up, what I've, what I've encountered but not experienced in myself. This nine-year-old kid going, man, this could be for me. We're driving in this old 82 Jetta. And he reached over and he put his hand on my knee. He prayed a simple prayer. He said, Holy Spirit, would you come and baptize my, my son? And in that moment, the Holy Spirit came on me. Despite my age, despite my understanding, and I began to weep and I began to speak in a language I hadn't learned. And it was real, and it was authentic. There weren't a bunch of people around me modeling it. There weren't a whole, like, there's none of that. On a highway from Swan River to Dauphin, Manitoba, the Holy Spirit met me empowered me for the life that he was calling me to, even at that young age. And over the years, and I don't get it, but over the years, there's moments and times and seasons where I've had experiences of just being filled afresh and anew with the Spirit of God moments when I needed strength, empowerment, to step into new things, to new places, new places of proclamation. And he's been so faithful. And I pray in tongues on a daily basis. And there was a time, friends, in the church, I was actually embarrassed about that. Because it is it's strange, it's weird, it's, 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 it's not normal. But friends, it edifies me. It builds me up. Man, when there's moments I don't know what to pray or how to pray, how many of you are Let's begin to pray in the Spirit. Spirit to Spirit, uninterrupted. He edifies and leads and guides my prayer life. A lot today because I knew that I didn't have what it takes to create an experience for you. But He does. So let me ask you the question same question my dad asked me 
all those years ago. Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It's a simple question. And it's a simple response. And I don't want to force anybody into anything. But this is the movement we're a part of. The Spirit-empowered church. Empowered in our speech. To proclaim the gospel until he comes. So our worship team is going to lead us. And we're going to just step into something a little different. Well, maybe not different. There are so many examples of those receiving the Spirit in the New Testament. Most, not all of them. Not all of them. This isn't prescriptive. But most of them. It involves this moment of the laying on of hands and the prayer of faith that you might receive. And so we want to do that today. I would be honored to have the opportunity to lay my hands on you and to ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill and empower and restore and renew and reinvigorate your spiritual life. And I don't care if you're old, and I don't care if you're young. The nine-year-old me will attest the Holy Spirit is for you. If you've called Jesus Lord, he's already in you. But we believe that there's a moment for you of empowerment beyond what you've experienced.